All right, guys, this is your host Shane with Radical Rocks. Today we've got a super exciting episode. We're going to go into all kinds of geode stuff, Gold Hill in Utah, uranium mine, mines of Arizona, opal on Mars, so much more. I was looking at Radical Rocks. There were fossils, minerals, and rocks and things. There were sand and hills and rings. The first thing I found was a geocrystals. Quartz with no clouds. Agate was hot and the ground was hard. But the gems were there to be found. See, I've been through the desert, found a rock of Felt good to have in my hand. In the desert, you can find lots of rocks. Cause radical rocks are everywhere. That's right, radical rocks are everywhere, and today we are going to talk about almost everywhere. Um, we are going to talk about only two places in the world where you can find this particular gemstone. Uh, it actually happens to be a star garnet. The mines of Arizona, we'll go into that in some detail if you're a, a geological uh a geology buff on mines and stuff, you will probably enjoy that. An old uranium mine in New Zealand, opals on Mars, and let's see, what else? We got Gold Hill, Utah. <coughs> we've got some other gemstones to look at. Um, we've got the trend. I'm not sure if it's the C is, is silent. I think it's trend sauce. It's C-A-S. It might be Transcaz, Transcaz geodes. Uh, we're going to talk about where to find geodes and so much more. Um, first of all, I want to thank you guys for liking and subscribing and um, commenting. Had a really nice, I, I get, you know, several comments every week now um, on the various social media outlets that we have, but got one from a, a young lady named Jamie. And she was just so nice and uh, aspiring geologists and interested in the lapidary arts and uh, just paid, paid us here at Radical Rocks, myself, a really nice compliment. So thank you, Jamie. Appreciate that. Um, definitely wish you the best in your, in your uh, rock hunting and gym hunting adventures and in your lapidary adventures. So guys... We do appreciate it when you go to the YouTube channel. It's Radical Rocks. You'll see it. Um, we've got about 52 videos there, completely different than the podcast material. There's trips, there's lapidary, silversmithing, stuff like that. And then um, you can join us on Facebook or you can join us on MeWe. Just look up Radical Rocks. And then just a shameless plug, we have a small few things on Etsy. I haven't really updated it much. But uh, Radical Rocks USA and then also Radical Rocks is our username on uh, eBay, too, if you want to check that out. So those are a few of the opportunities to connect with thousands of other um, lapidary folks as yourself or rockhounds as yourself or mineral lovers as yourself. So let's get right into it. I've got a ton to share with you today. A ton. Uh, let's get right into the five most valuable emerald jewels in the world. And, you know, when I give you the, the highlights, those are just some of the ones that, that stuck out. There's even more than that in here. If you want something else, please reach out to us. Um, we read all our comments uh, pretty quickly. So reach out to us on one of our social medias or whatnot. We'll be glad to, to engage with you. The format that they have on the podcast for uh, asking a question is not a very good format so um, don't don't use that one go check us out on like i said social media okay five most valuable emeralds in the world by uh, market research telcast and uh, actually if you go to marketresearchtelcast.com you can look up this article there are some beautiful emeralds in history. You know, royal families to Hollywood stars love emeralds. Emerald is my first favorite crystal, uh, crystal gemstone, okay? 
when it comes to semi-precious other types of gemstones, I've got a huge, huge list of those. But emerald was my first favorite crystal gemstone. And of the colored gemstones, um, emerald has a special place in my heart. Even though I have come to really like alexandrite and some other ones um, as much or more so than emerald. But emeralds are beautiful. The, the uh, by emerald is one of the world's most fabulous emeralds an estimated value of 400 million dollars it is 840 pound gemstone that was discovered in 2001 in in the brazil it is huge um, it came in three main parts rough pear-shaped crystals two smaller attached pieces numerous other fragments and uh, there was a myth that it was cursed and whoever would possess this would be cursed with uh, bad luck. Boy, I tell you, if you found that thing, I, I wouldn't have bad luck for long because <coughs> I'd be selling it so I could retire. The Duke of Devonshire Emerald. This is a very exquisite, valuable emerald. Estimated value, 6.5 million. It weighs about 137 carats. Gorgeous. It was presented to the 12th Duke of Devonshire in 1741 by King George as a token for his services in the court. Um, it's been at auction several times. It's acquired by Christie's auction, and um, that's where its true value became known. Um, Rockefeller Emerald, this is another one. Very uh, legendary piece. It was a 6.5 octagonal cut emerald. Huge, largest known emerald of... Uh, that quality, uh, they say, deep green hue, beautiful clarity and brilliance acquired by John Rockefeller in 1911 for 180000 which, you know, is probably worth 10 times that now. It says here that today would be worth millions, if not billions of dollars in an open market. Well, I don't know how you jump from millions to billions, but uh, millions to maybe a billion would probably be a more... Um, you know, balanced statement. The chalk emerald, um, it's C-H-A-L-K, chalk emerald perhaps. It's beautiful emerald, very green with a light blue halo surrounding it. It was found in about the 1700s in Denmark. Uh, it has become one of the most sought after pieces of jewelry around the world. The exquisite color makes it stand out as something special amongst other gems. Um, it also has kind of a rough texture, which adds a character that cannot be found elsewhere. The, the uh, chalk emerald is a beauty. The Theodora emerald is a stunning gemstone of 583 carats, um, huge, well, over a, a kilogram, one kilogram, Unique green gem has a deep inner glow that mesmerizes anyone who looks at it and makes them want to give all their money away, right? Uh, the necklace once belonged to King Theodora, who ruled the 15th century in Colombia's Musica era. Whatever, I don't know the history on that, but it is uh, beautiful and has found its uh, way around many museums in the world as an example of their um, art and gemstones. All right. America's oldest projectiles were found in Idaho. They were made out of gemstones. Uh, looks like quartz, obsidian, uh, different types of agate and shirt. The archaeologists at the Oregon State University, by the way, I am not a geologist. Somebody said, oh, you're, you're quite the geologist. I'm not a geologist. I'm just a normal guy that is, well, maybe I'm not so normal. I'm a crazy rock hound. I am addicted to rocks. I would do this 24-7 if I could. It's my dream come true. I have spent uh, a big chunk of my life hunting and digging gemstones in the Midwest and buying collections and stones from all around the world. Um, I love it, and doing lapidary and cutting and grinding and uh, stuff like that. It's all just fun, fun, fun for me. So anyway, these projectiles from Idaho 
There's 13 of them. They think these are the oldest. Uh, most these uh, ancient, uh, you know, arrowheads and spears that they find in North America, United States, America, they feel that they are probably like, you know, a few hundred years to to thousands of years, maybe 10,000 years. These here, they're saying, are 15, 16,000 years. They're saying, oh, they're 3,000 years older than uh, other points. Maybe they're 2,300 years older than other points. I don't know how in the world that can be uh, accurately determined. I know they do radio dating, but that is, man, that is, that is a needle on a gauge that is just not very... Um, uh, very, here's another part of the article that says, We found a bone that is 16,000 years old. A bone fragment. Um, they say, though, that this particular point, which they call a projectile point, is very similar to ones found in uh, Japan, which date back to about the same period. So who knows? Maybe they migrated over from Japan and brought these. I mean, it's anyone's guess. But uh, I thought it was interesting because they're made of these different uh, rocks and minerals. And, you know, it's always the oldest. I, I hit on that and kind of pick on that sometimes. Is Never the newest, never the youngest, never uh, dull and boring, but always the best, the newest, and the oldest, right? Or the not the newest, the oldest. Dinosaur fossil footprints found a first time in the Xingyu Basin of China, Hubei province, according to the Global Times at globaltimes.cn. And you can see a picture of some of them here. I was looking at the article here. In this basin in central China, this is the first time that they found footprints. They feel these are uh, pteropods, um, other types of uh, ones, one from the bronch bronchial pods, which are the huge giant ones, and one from a two-footed uh, carnivore, which the footprint wasn't too good, so they weren't really exactly sure. But they used a drone to look at these footprints because they're right on a rock wall. So this, this uh, mudstone from Jurassic period, which this is kind of rare for this area too, is to find something that is uh, in a layer that looks like the Jurassic period, what geologists note as the Jurassic period, but they found all these different seropod footprints. Five, for, uh, five of them were from the front feet and five from the rear feet. And then all the footprints have been severely weathered and poorly preserved. But perhaps they'll find more now that they found these. And um, they, they tried to figure out about how fast the seropod could walk. Um, they say 3.89 uh, kilometers kilometers per hour and then 6.8 kilometers per mile so one could be a juvenile one could have been a big one and um, they don't know the exact classification again because these are not the cleanest uh, footprints that you've ever found but pretty cool NASA rover discovers opals on Mars so this is what they say David uh, Bressan on Forbes.com tells us in an article under that title about it. There's also a video. They've got a regular opal here. This isn't one from Mars. It's a it's an Australian one that they've they've borrowed off the Getty pages. But anyway, they said since 2012 we suspected that these halos that we saw could contain opal. Now opal is uh, silica that is alternated by water. You're actually looking at water uh, through opal, in opal, that is locked in the microcrystals. And this was what gives it its rainbow color, um, like a rainbow, because you're looking at light through, through water, which breaks up the spectrum of light so that you can see all those different colors. So the NASA sent the Curiosity rover to Mars to explore the Gale Crater. That's where we're at. And... They got to see what they feel is confirmation of the opals. So this is what they say in this article. It says, by happenstance, Curiosity rover drove right over one of the fracture halos many years ago, long before uh, they realized what it was. And now 
they look at it and inst uh, analyzing instrument data, they found something curious that halos not only look like halos found much later in the mission in a completely different rock type of unit, but were very similar in composition. A whole lot of silica and water is what they're saying. And um, let's see. That's not in quotation marks by applying new methods. Yep. Um, they said co-author Sean Kazernikai joined the rover team. Looking at the old images, they can see the halos. Then it says, our new analysis of archive data shows striking similarity between all the fracture halos we've observed much later in the mission, Gabriel said. Seeing these fracture networks were so widespread and likely chock full of opal was incredible. So in this quote, he's saying likely, likely chock full of opal. Um, they look at the drill sites and it says here, according to the article, scientists confirmed that these light tone rocks were very unique compared to anything else they'd seen. Looking through the archival data, Gabriel and his team searching for opportunities to study these rocks again and they confirmed the opal rich composition this is according to the article once they arrived at the lub lubango drill site this is a bright tone fracture halo that they found gabriel led a dedicated measurement campaign using the rover's instruments confirming the opal rich composition according to this article they have a map here of the opal-rich halos that are seen in the cross-cutting of the bedrock on the subsurface of Mars. The discovery of opal is noteworthy as it can form from scenarios where silicon is in a solution of water, a similar process of dissolving sugar or salt in water. If there's too much salt, conditions change, it begins to settle at the bottom. On Earth, silica falls out of solution in places like lake and ocean bottoms and can form in hot springs and geysers, similar to the environments at Yellowstone National Park. So one thing they can do with opal is you can actually find water in it. Um, it, will, it will have uh, traces of water in it. And um, this is giving them the feeling that water was there on Mars. Um, and uh, it says here, Opal itself is made of predominantly two components, silica and water, with water containing a range from 3 to 21% by weight with minor impurities such as iron. This means if you grind it down and apply heat, opal releases water. So this is very interesting that they have found um, what appears to be, according to this article, water on Mars. That would be confirmed if that is truly opal. And they're saying that the article is saying that the studies confirm it. But the direct quote from the scientist was was more iffy. So hopefully they're not stretching and, and kind of yanking our chain here. Hopefully they're being truthful. We'll see in the next couple of weeks what kind of articles come out on these opals. Because that would be, um, you know, a big scientific uh, huge, amazing finding on Mars and would indicate that if there is opal on Mars with water in it, they should definitely be able to find water somewhere in the planet. It should be locked up and trapped somewhere else as well. All right, so I thought that was pretty cool. I hope you did too. We've got a bunch more articles, bunch more information, bunch more rocks. We've still got geodes, gold mining stories, and more. Blue Sapphire. It's durable. We talk about it a lot, but at woman's error, E-R-A dot com, an article called The Beautiful Durability of Blue Sapphires is telling us again and reminding us how beautiful sapphire is. It sparkles. It's durable. It is a corundum mineral here. Um, made up of aluminum oxide found in shades of blue, but also can be found in pink, yellow, green, and white, also clear. It is third hardest on the most scale for um, gemstones, generally speaking, and uh, only surpassed by diamond and moissanite. Uh, 
And uh, so that's good. You can wear it a lot. They've got a picture of one here. It looks like it is blue with some red in the middle. I don't know if the red in the middle is just the person's fingertip showing through the other side. But uh, they talk about the rich blue color is caused by the presence and trace of trace amounts of iron, titanium in the mineral. And that's what gives it its color. Real pretty. Um, it's found in all sorts of places around the world. Sri Lanka, Madagascar, Alaska. Um, also in Montana in the United States of America is another place. Uh, Kashmir and Madagascar are where high quality blue ones are found. Some beautiful aqua green ones, aqua blue maybe even in Montana are found and can be found and bought. Um, what else? They are beautiful. Yeah. And the bigger the better too, right? Nice. Nice, nice. Okay. Abandoned uranium mine. Inside an abandoned uranium mine lost in the New Zealand bush. Um, Charlie Gates tells us all about this at stuff.co.nz. Uh, this is our friends in New Zealand. Let me get a swig of coffee here. Thank you. John worked at this mine some 50 years ago. Um, he's since... Uh, quit that. Uh, they closed this mine in 1971. There was a real push for uranium back in the 40s and 50s. This is when he worked there. He wanted to find it again. Um, it was said to be a very profitable mine. They punched uh, a big hole in there. There was a lot of incentives. Uh, it ends up that uh, it is about a 60 meter corridor that is carved into the mountain. If you're familiar with um, uranium type ores, you know that uh, it, it does set off on a Geiger counter and originally that was how it was found. Uh, a couple of uh, older gentlemen discovered it with their Geiger counter back in 1955 and um, they became very famous because uh, they, at the time New Zealand was looking at nuclear power. Since then uh, they have they've uh, kicked that to the curb and look for other green uh, forms of energy. So I'm not exactly sure how, how that's working, but this Geiger counter found uh, found the, the outcrop. It, it led them on a search. So they found some rocks that, that went off on the Geiger counter, but it wasn't quite high enough, but that led them to where the mine was. Now in the mine, you can use a special light um, the light grows, it's a UV light. I don't know, they don't say short wave or long wave, but what happens is the walls glow like this purple uh, and then green color under the UV lights. It looks pretty crazy. So our friend John searched and searched. Ferns and stuff had grown over the entrance of the mine. He first found a couple pieces of dead wood. He went back and kept looking, finally found the entry to the mine. And uh, they went up there and took these pictures for this article. Now they will probably never mine that again. But New Zealand um, is uh, uh, has that uranium. And it says, uh, when they found it, they thought that was more important than the gold discoveries of the 1860s at the time. But it has gone back to uh, growing wild. Uh, they're not real big on mining there. And... Um, the mine is closed, and all that's left is a few beer bottles, the little hole there, and uh, John here, who is now more into uh, conservation, it seems like, than mining. But uh, pretty interesting, our friends in New Zealand there. It ended up that this mineral, once they dug it out, they popped some holes in there, and it wasn't quite strong enough of uranium to do what they wanted, so it never really took off. And that was how the story kind of ended. Um, promise rings. I'm not going to spend too much time on this, but uh, sometimes uh, you may be aware that uh, people will get a promise ring instead of an engagement ring. This is very, uh, or at least when I was younger, it was very popular for younger kids in their teens, perhaps, and uh, or waiting for uh, to be of age and being promised to be married once they were of age. Elisa 
uh, Knopwood, K-N-O-P-W-O-O-D, tells us at, uh, at the inscribermag.com that uh, promise rings are still popular. She tells us that uh, the most popular types are diamonds. That's uh, very popular, can be set in a variety of metals. She says gemstones such as sapphires, rubies, and emeralds are also popular and give it some color that gives a special meaning or may relate to a special meaning to the person who receives it, such as their favorite color. Birthstone rings also work good because uh, their birthstone or their other friends, uh, their, their partner's birthstone can be a very meaningful. Matching promise rings are another type of thing that uh, symbolizes commitment and then traditional metal promise rings of just gold, platinum, or silver, or other metals can also be um, used. Now, it does go into, when choosing a promise ring, there's things you want to consider. So what is their preference? What do they like? Is there some sort of meaning behind it? What about quality? You know, uh, Do you understand the quality of stones? If you're going to pick stones, the four, the four Cs, cut, clarity, color, and carat weight, all those things are important. Uh, we think with a uh, promise ring, you would just want a fractional stone. You wouldn't want to get a big old giant, you know, it's not an engagement stone. Budget, you know, how much can you afford? That's that's important. It's not an engagement ring. It's not a wedding ring. Uh, it's definitely not going to be in that category, but you don't want it to be a, a Cracker Jack, you know, out of a box of Cracker Jacks. You want it to be something meaningful that they'll be proud to show or that you would be proud to have. And having it certified is also a good thing, too. Um, you can get a number of certifications. GIA, Gemological Institute of America, always commands a higher price and value. Now, what else have we got? Um, dirty business of beauty. Now, this is uh, about some uh, crystals and gemstones at DW.com, the dirty business of beauty we can see that a lot of these gemstones are becoming very popular for the metaphysics and the uh, crystal uh, people who looking at crystals for spirituality and things like that. And um, it's driving this big demand for quartz and gemstones. But some of these things are mined under very questionable conditions in uh, the global south. And uh, I think it's something to think about, you know. Um, Rose quartz. It says uh, rose quartz is, quartz is said to relieve stress in this industry, and all kinds of quartz, rose quartz products, rose quartz jars with water that supposedly can help you to to uh, crystals, to wands, um, ingots uh, or not ingots, but uh, capuchons and different types of shapes are supposed to help you recuperate from your stressful life and reconnect with nature. But when you find out where most of these stones come from, um, this is almost a slave labor that's happening in Africa and Asia and different countries. Um, you read about some of the, the deaths uh, in Madagascar, uh, in, in Miramar, uh, mining jade and things like that, other stones that are quite popular. Some of these uh, African islands uh, are extremely dangerous. The conditions are atrocious for the rose quartz. So um, where did yours come from? Do you care? It's just something to think about. Um, I, I sometimes think it's ironic when you have a gemstone that's supposedly bringing you all these healing properties, but yet it came from such, uh, such an area. And then there's also the thought that, well, if they didn't have those stones to mine, what would they be doing? You know, would they have anything else? Maybe this is the only way they can make a living, you know. Um, if that's so, hopefully, you know, hopefully, sometimes people will go in there, groups will go into an area and get uh, a better price for people who are making crafts or, you know, bringing raw products into uh, the market. So hopefully something like that could happen. Giant geodes. We are going to talk a lot about geodes today. I want to tell you a little bit about giant geodes. Where do they come from? Our friends at Rock and Gym. You go to rock, the letter N, gym.com, 
and you can see these huge crystals, big as a man. I mean, if you fell down, the thing would jab through your chest and rip out your back um, and kill you. They're just huge. Um, but these things are in, uh, they call it the Popeye geode, and it they have a, a link here to to another book about how giant geodes form, but these geodes are huge, bigger than a human. Uh, they can be several feet wide and, and many feet long, and these cavities in Brazil are huge. You've seen the amethyst bugs that are the size of hot tubs uh, sometimes in these uh, gym and jewelry stores, or if you go to Quartzsite or Tucson, you're going to see these huge cavities of amethyst bugs of crystals, and some of these crystals are as big as your head. They're amazing. But this Popeye, or Popey geode, however it's pronounced, it it is dubbed um, uh, a huge, the biggest geode mines, uh, or geodes crystals underground. It's 165 feet underground. It was, it was found in 1999 in an abandoned silver and lead mine in Spain, uh, another one where they found 26 foot long by six feet wide by five and a half feet high. Uh, and described as about the size and shape of a cement mixer drum mounted on a truck. Total volume is estimated 390 cubic feet. The crystal composed is ice clear uh, selenite, average a little over 1.5 feet in length, although some are as long as 6 or 7 feet. They have a video there where you can check that out, where they are looking at these huge cavities. Some of these cavities of giant crystals are calcium, dissolved calcium, and will grow huge sulfite mineral crystals. And uh, it says here that uh, these develop over many, many years. Supersized geodes uh, have to do with the climate, uh, where they are, how long a period they have, and the Earth's history and temperature of going between icy cold and relative warmth, they say, is part of how crystals form. Small crystals dissolve and get sucked up into bigger crystals in the solution. Warm temperatures dissolve the smaller crystals where chilly temperatures favor larger crystal growth. And I guess that's why they found these down deeper. Other scientists say climate fluctuations above ground may not significantly affect the subterranean environment which is more likely influenced by subsurface hydrothermal activity. Still, climate change could have an effect in warmer, wetter periods, could provide more water to flood the subsurface cavities, while colder, drier times would then allow for growth spurts of the selenite crystals. So if you want to find out more about that, um, just like I said, go to our friends at Rock and Jim and look up how do giant geodes form? And you can find out all about that. There's only two places in the world where you can find these. And one of them is Idaho. And I have uh, had the blessing of going and digging some of these uh, rare Idaho garnets. Some of them are star garnets. I have a video on YouTube on that. If you want to go to Radical Rocks, subscribe, like, share, and all that good stuff. Our videos there, check it out. Um, there's pay to dig places, there's a park, a state park that you can go to. They're known for their deep purplish red color. Some people call them huckleberry garnets. And when you find a star that has uh, two or three or four or five or even six points, you hit a jackpot. It is a metamorphic rock. It's found primarily in Emerald Creek the Garnet area of St. Joe National Forest at the Bitterroot Mountains of Idaho. The beauty and rarity of Idaho Star Gardens make them highly sought after gemstones by collectors and jewelry enthusiasts and are often used as engagement rings and other types of jewelry. And you can read about this at um, https semicolon backslash backslash original.newsbreak.com and uh, just look up, uh, these can only be found in two places in the world, and Idaho is one of them. And you will be able to read all kinds of stuff about this. They say that uh, 
you can only find them in two places. One is in Idaho and the other is in India, probably Sri Lanka. Uh, Idaho star garnets are known for durability and hardness, almost 7.5 on the Mohs hardness scale. Resistant to scratches and other damaging, making them a great choice for everyday wear. Um, if you go to pay, it says right now at the Emerald Creek Garnet area in North Idaho, you can pay $10 a day to search. Keep up to five pounds of your own star garnets. Children six to 12 pay a rate of $5 and under six can be there for free. Great family activity, very located, uh, near located to St. Marie's, a unique opportunity for rock collectors to dig or those who want to become rock hunters. They have a link here where you can um, get the permits, but if you look up Emerald Creek and Star Garnet digging, you will find it. You will be able to Google it and find it. Um, this area is seven miles long, very bumpy. You better have a good vehicle or you won't be able to drive back in there too much. They do have a campground with 18 campsites. Um, the hunting prog process is uh, digging through the dirt and the rocks and shifting through. Park rangers can help you through the process. They have a dig site here where they have screens and things like that that you can use, I believe. A shifting area where you, they usually get like a pile, they'll dig it up and you, you go through that and find it. I heard you can find them in the creek too, but the bigger ones are dug up out of the ground and um, you just rinse and um, my cat is standing right in front of me. Rinse them and screen them, and they will pop up. If you watch my videos on the Ocean View mine um, around there, I actually am in the process of uh, going to a pay dig site where you do screen and they supply water and things like that. Now, cutting and polishing these garnets, um, it can be a process. Some of them have a very hard coating that's on them. Um, they don't talk about it here, but if you watch my video on YouTube, you'll find out about this very hard brown coating. They don't look uh, like beautiful red garnets when you find them most of the time. And you have to use uh, uh, a, a muratic acid wash to get them clean. And I have a video on that as well. So uh, check it out. It's quite a process. It takes you uh, several days, uh, maybe even a week to get them really clean. All right, next. Apple Valley Rock and Mineral gives a presentation at the Greenville Library. Valleybreeze.com tells us all about this. Um, this area is in, um, oh gosh, can't remember what state it was. I thought it was uh, Greenville Library. I forget where it was, what state. It is not, um, it's Rhode Island, Rhode Island. This is a great thing. If you belong to a rock and gym club, please have someone in your club, you know, go to the schools, go to the libraries, and do these demonstrations. You just bring out some fossils, bring out some polished rocks, show how cabbageons are, talk about, you know, the different types of rocks, sedimentary, igneous, um, uh, metamorphic, you know, and give a basic rundown. Talk about the gemstones and um, you know how you've collected them and what you've done with them have a few fossils kid love kids love fossils and this will be such a hit um, definitely need to have new rock hounds in in uh, in our uh, ranks fossil hunters make richmond a destination after frequently unearthing new species abc.net.au our friends in australia here Lucy Cooper and Jade Tomey tell us all about this, this area here where they are finding uh, marine life, often as once a month finding a new species. I mean, how exciting is that? A whole new species um, is being found almost once a month. That's crazy. And you could find a once in a lifetime discovery here. Um, people volunteer here. Uh, they found vertebrae and salmons and other types of fish. You learn how to deal with these fossils and uh, dig them up. They found uh, uh, crocodile heads, all kinds of neat stuff there. Just amazing to uh, dig up 
these animals from the creaceous period long long ago and uh, they the article goes is quite uh, quite a bit if you want to check that out find out more about it all right let's see what's next let's look at hmm mine tales of Arizona this is for my geology buffs maybe I should save it let's talk about geodes all right um, we talked there's an explorer there's a exploring the crystal cave in Ohio this is our friends rock and Jim they email me this stuff they you can get the emails too you can subscribe if you want I would Ohio is by Putten Bay Island the glacial grooves of Kelly's Island are a must-do activity when visiting the area. Put in Bay, and that's put hyphen in hyphen Bay Island in Erie Lake, is a place where Paul Bunyan could have uh, skipped a rock across the water into the border of Canada. If you're not familiar with the legend of Paul Bunyan, um, check it out sometime. It's kind of fun. The history of Crystal Cave is here. It was discovered in about 1879. He actually used a cave for wine um, uh, above it. And as he dug, uh, dug, he broke through the top of a cave and found these crystals. Thought he had struck it rich, um, but this uh, cel celestite uh, was the crystals that were in there. And they started bringing tourists in to view this crystal cave. Um, the top was still a winery and the wine owners call the cave the largest Celestine uh, geode in the world. The tours are offered from May to September. Really a neat experience. They tell you about heading to Kelly's Island um, in Putten Bay. They tell you about the park. They tell you about the uh, glacier grooves uh, alternate gl glacier groove theories and fossils that are from this area and then uh, these uh, huge crystals that you can find really neat um, we've got a picture of people here um, and that you can go in there I mean how neat is that right now this is the Transis uh, geodes T-R-A-N-C-A-S um, with crystals. Our friends at Rock and Jim again sent this to me. There's a picture of a beautiful geode here with somewhat orange, um, orangish crust and then a black, um, probably hematite or even a smoky quartz layer, very thick border around the outer edge, and then these uh, druzy crystals all through it beautiful very sparkly some black in there these were originally known as uh, chihuahua geodes found in chihuahua mexico about 1971 and um, they are different from their famous cousin the choyas geodes and these are unique because they have uh, crystals there's been books written on this they're usually small about two to four inches in size uh, not very colorful with only pale colors ranging from gray to blue. But because of these fabulous druzy crystals, they just glimmer and shine. They're clear quartz, chalcedony, calcite, aragonite, sometimes quartz scepters are in there. Uh, Transcus geodes may contain a form of, ge of quartz that is rather hard to categorize. Curved finger-like projectiles, some have described the Transcus geode as miniature caves with stalactites and stalagmites lining the hollow interior. Uh, Tancus geodes have a thin outer shell that is usually gray-brown, cream, peach, or peach colored. And uh, when something else that makes them very fun is they tend to fluorescent green under a UV shortwave light. Um, they contain small but not harmful amounts of uranium. These hollow centers sometimes uh geodes can be called uh if they're solid thunder eggs that's where it's completely solid um, but that's not really what they find here with the druzies really pretty where do you find them 
uh, surface mining activities, um, and so on and so forth. The geode word comes from a Greek word, geodias, which means earth-like. Geodes are secondary structures formed in sedimentary and volcanic rocks. Um, this story is credited by Richard Gross uh, long ago and uh, had been repeated probably many times. Where are geodes found? Well, another article from our friends at Rock and Gym Magazine tells us to meet the famous geodes from Keel Cuck. K-U-K, it's K-E-O-K-U-K, Iowa. So these are found in Iowa. Uh, they have beautiful brown and white calcite crystals uh, inside this uh, geodes and large pseudo-cubic crystal, uh, calcite crystals near the bottom of the cavity. So it looks like someone's shaking some rock salt over these brown cubes and crystals that are in there. So again, a geode is the rock that has a hollow part inside, typically lined with crystals, minerals, or both. Uh, they're found in greatest abundance of the region and about 70 miles in all directions from Keokuk, Iowa. These geodes are mostly collected in strata off the lower Warshaw Formation and in the creeks and rivers that erode material from this formation. Lower Warshaw Formation is roughly... Uh, they say hundreds of millions of years old, contain shales, limestones, and dolomites. They're formed, uh, they're not really sure. Geo, uh, geologists have tried to figure out for a long way, long time. One theory is that uh, they formed on a seafloor and um, are the remains of old ancient invertebrates that provided the hollow sites. I don't know about that. But some of them have yellow crystals inside, which are quite spectacular. Uh, they're very rare. If you want to collect these, you can go to the annual Geode Fest sponsored by the Keokuk Area Convention of Tourism and Bureau. And uh, you have an opportunity to go on six guided hunts over three days. Some of these sites are not available to collectors except during the Geode Fest. So this is one to put on your bucket list if you're able to go out to this area um, or you can go to the pay to collect sites that are found on the bureau's website um, yeah so there's lots of areas to collect here i hate that they close all the areas off but i guess the only way to keep them open is to either someone own them or 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 do like this quartz is in there chalcedony rind several varieties of quartz may be present the color will be clear milky or smoky some appear yellow red or red because they're coated with a iron coating mineral in addition to the chalcedony rind chalcedony may also coat the cavity interior in the case of dewdrop diamond geode white chalcedony underlines the uh, quartz crystals pseudocubic quartz is another form that can be found in these geodes. Calcite is the second most common mineral found in these geodes. It occurs in dozens of modified crystal forms, uh, the pseudocubic, nailhead, barrel, dog tooth, tabular, uh, pagoda, and colors include clear white, brown, iridescent brown, pink, and black. So there's also another mineral that's in there. It's called uh, kaolinite. It is a dry mineral. It looks kind of like snow. It's uh, powdery, doesn't really add much to it. It's a secondary mineral. Uh, pyrite can be found in there, usually in cubes or yellowish brown smudges of these uh, crystals that have degenerated and brown. Marcosite, this uh, is made up of uh, pyrite sometimes. It's polymorphs, it has the same chemical uh, formula but different properties. And uh, it's more visible than pyrite. can be golden, brassy, green, brown, metallic, iridescent. Uh, the crystal structure can be capillary, tabular, um, or other, uh, like a coxcomb on a, on a rooster. Calcoprite, calcoprite is uh, crystals that are very small, but they are beautiful in colors. We have red, purple, blue, green, because of associated with other minerals such as malchus, uh, uh, malachite. 
Also, oregonite. This is a polymorph with calcite. Oregonite it can have star-like clusters and needles that are white to clear. Dolomite, uh, usually in cubes, can be iron-rich dolomite. Clusters of small red-shaped, saddle-shaped crystals. Uh, sporadolite, large, beautiful crystals of sporadolite with black, very lustrous surface. Crystals may exhibit uh, or inhabit the entire crystal portion of the geode cavity, which sometimes obscures the crystal faces. Barite, um, they vary from yellow to blue with white, different shades of transparency. The crystals are tabular, long rods, or rosettes. Uh, selenite is a form of uh, gypsum and occurs as long, slender, transparent rods. Geothite, a small, shiny black capillary in the form of doubly terminated crystals are common. Um, some of the degenerated gothonite is responsible for yellow staining or other minerals. There are pseudomorphs also. Um, pyroleucite, uh, black sometimes. Uh, dendritic crystals on calcite and quartz. Hematite. Uh, appears as deep red powder or red coating on quartz. Smithsonite, rare on these types, but appears as a boitroidal uh, gray-green or light blue. And then um, malachite, which is very uncommon. Small dark green needle clusters if found um, in there. So that is everything on these crystals. Uh, butamin can also be found. This is a... Uh, uh, found in uh, these geodes sometimes. A geode that contains water is called a inhydro. So sometimes you'll pop these open, the water's still in them. And um, sometimes there is, uh, it can look like a, like a hydrocarbon, like oil. So you just never know what you'll find. All right, now, what else? There's an article on Arizona. Um, yeah, mine tales. Arizona features many mines with device, uh, excuse me, diverse geology and mineralogi uh, mineralogy. Let me get a drink here. All right. If you're still with me, William Escarza tells us about this at the Arizona Daily Star. You go to Tucson.com. You can look this up. Uh, it's not that old. Just came out uh, less than a day ago. Arizona has a distinction of many mine sites, diverse, and this is in America, uh, Tucson, Arizona, within 20 miles south of that, there is a mine that is the, operated by Freeport McMorgan, one of the largest copper molybdenum mining operations in the world, started in 1895, and 60 years later, they found this uh, copper deposit by and recommended that uh, they work on it. It was in large uh, production all the way up until uh, 1959 and continued into 1970. And um, it has secondary copper sulfites along with malignite, contains 100 and 300 parts per million of rhenium, a rare element found in less than one part per billion of the Earth's crust. Many other minerals were found there. Um, this rare earth of rhenium is a metal used by the aerospace company, is a super alloy used in jet and industrial gas turbine engines, noted for its heat and corrosion resilience. Uh, rhenium adds longer life and higher performance and um, is uh, very, very valuable. So they get that there. Uh, miners drawn to the Mineral Creek Mining District located between the Tortilla and Dripping Springs Mountains initially for silver deposits in the 1870s evolved into copper production by the Ray Copper Company and uh, more geology surveys were done and they found uh, a lot of these rocks uh, were suitable for copper and mining began about 1955. They did heap leaching where they use, uh, you know, sulfuric acid and stuff like that to mine, uh, to process copper and copper cooperite. 
And then the Evening Star Mine, known as the Queen Group in the Bighorn Mining District of Maricopa County, renowned, renowned for rare mineral discoveries, including red lead chromite mineral. Um, boy, that's a tough word there. I'm not even sure what that is. Fornicite, a rare lead copper chromate arsenate hydrate hydrite mineral wickenburgite a secondary lead mineral found from the oxidization of lead ore so that kind of sounds dangerous the lead and stuff like that in the bighorn mountains this is uh in west central arizona they're noted for their complex geology as well a lot of iron oxide stained quartz veins in the area the evening star mine has six claims in 1949, and they were producing gold, silver, and copper along with lead in this granite uh, mineral, and they had a 69-foot shaft and a 197-foot incline. The Crown King Mine uh, is uh, very economically profitable between 1875 and 1885. A gold mine also produced over 1.2 million in silver, the most productive mines in Yavapai County, which is the south part of Arizona. Um, there's schist and granites in this geology of this area with silver, minor gold from quartzite and rhyolite fissure veins with three parallel ledges rising in excess of 15 feet above the, above the surface with silver mineralization that has been found in horn silver, which is a very rich silver ore, along with small amounts of Imbolite, which is uh, silver chloride and silver bromide, and um, uh, trace amounts of uh, arginite and gold discovered in the site with copper, adamony, and zinc, uh, which formed a sulfite discovered at the lower mine level. So that, that was a plethora of minerals there. The Mistake Mine was a 21-acre claim located at Box Canyon Mining District, again south in Yavapai County, they found a Ramsdellite mineral specimen. Ramsdellite is a rare manganese uh, oxide that forms in veins and bedded manganese deposits. This, this was discovered in 1954. Uh, they mined this property and still do. Uh, lesser known mining uh, claims such as the S and O claims, pits, trenches located east of Wickenburg, where fine purple um, types of fluorite on quartz and a lead carbonite on barite crystals along with zipidite, a rare uranium mineral classified as hydrian, hydrated potassium uranial uh, sulfite hydroxide. So lots going on there. These uh, quartz and lead and barite and the zipidite, the rare uranium mineral. Uh, zipite forms a secondary mineral that forms on the surface of the rock with a uh, efflorence, a process when water evaporates and comes into contact with dry air. Sounds like it probably flor fluorescence under a light too, being that it is uh, uranium based. And it these claims are the brick claims, the lead silver claims, the lower D&H claims, and the well-known Finch mine, the barking spider mine. And the dripping, this is all in the Dripping Springs Mountain. Um, some of the mineralization that occurs in these zones is limestones in contact with igneous dikes, fractures, fissures, and bedding planes. And the mining dates back to the 1880s and 1930s with over 130 claims filed. A lot of it was for vandium, uh, malignum, zinc, copper, and there was a London, Arizona consolidated copper company that processed and mined that and shipped it to a Hayden smelter for refinement. It is noted by mineral collectors, including the Finch mine, which is known for wolfenite crystals with a thin layer of druzy quartz. So there's a lot to unpack in this article. Um, starting to lose my voice here, but the Silver Hill mine north of uh, Tucson in the Waterman Mountains uh, talks about the production there through the 1940s and such. Uh, gold, silver, lead, copper um, that was shipped to El Paso smelters and uh, so on and so forth. This is um, a replacement limestone mixture of carbonites and sulfites 
Mineral collectors are drawn here for our rich calcite, uh, rosite, smithsonite, a glassy bitrudel to crystalline masses of rare secondary minerals of orizerite found in the zone of oxidized over lead-bearing deposits. Now, I've never heard of that. It says it's greatly sought after. Um, I wish they had a picture of it. They don't. But uh, the article is quite lengthy. If you want to find out more about Arizona, go to Tucson.com and look up Mining Tales of Arizona, featuring many mines with diverse geology and mineralogy, mineralogy by William uh, Ascarza. Uh, and you can find out more about that. Um, and also, for you who have hung in with me to the very, very end, we will talk a little bit about Utah's Great Salt Lake Desert, where the area of Gold Hill, the Gold Hill Mining District, was established in 1857. Uh, this information is brought to us by Gold Rush Expeditions. The issue of the uh, holiday edition for winter 2022 here, you can subscribe to them. They sell gold mining properties or mineral properties. Um, you can go to goldrushexpeditions.com and they will send you this beautiful book uh, or catalog and uh, with lots of history and stories and things like that. Um, they've been sending them free. I think they're going to charge at some point, but for, for now, I've, I've got, they've been sending them to me. Gold Hill District, uh, really neat area here. And um, there's lead, silver, gold, all in this area. The real boom didn't happen, even though it was discovered about 1857. The gold boom didn't happen until about 1892. Uh, between 1857 and 1904, over 50 mines were developed on the Gold Hill District. Only about half the mines in the district were shipping out substantial ore. Production picked up in 1917, along with the development of the Deep Creek Railroad and a branch of the Western Pacific Railroad connected Gold Hill with the rest of the country. So that really helped. And the boom hit in the 1920s when there was a huge spike in America's appetite for a different mineral, arsenic. <laughs> During World War II, Southern farmers developed, uh, discovered arsenic was an important ingredient, effective uh, insect repellent. Demand for arsenic skyrocketed as farmers wanted more and more Gold Hill was rich with arsenic, so don't lick the rocks over there. You'll die. That's why rockhounders should never lick a rock, okay? Very bad idea. <laughs> you can spit on it, but don't lick it, all right? That's some good advice. It's estimated Gold Hill alone produced over $2.5 million worth of arsenic between 1923 and 1925. Now, if that's in dollars back then, that's billions of dollars worth. Um, so this, this kept going on. Um, there was over 3,000 people in the town at that time. They had a paper. They had stores. Um, five years later, after the arsenic demand and uh, ran out, um, America starts importing more arsenic, and um, it devastated the gold mining district and the Gold Hill district. And in 1926 and 1940, only small mining operations continued, uh, most very unprofitable, in the following year, the United States went into World War II. And again, more arsenic is needed. Uh, and they produced uh, 98 tons, yielding 15.2% of the arsenic, surpassing the production of all other Utah mining districts. Um, they also produced tungsten, which is a steel-strengthening uh, agent. Tungsten is very nice. They... Uh, came from the Reaper, Lucy L., or Yellow Hammer Mine. Aside from Gold Hill's importance in national security, the mining district is known for its world-class specimens of austenite uh, and wanonite and tuilite, which are first discovered in the Gold Hill district. And then Thule County is the Thuleite uh, mineral, which is the only arsenic sulfite presently known in nature. A novel mineral occurs in transparent honeycomb colored crystals. This uh, wanatite 
Tate was named in honor of Wantia A. Curtis, an amateur mineral collector that discovered the mineral in the Gold Hill District. She was inducted into the uh, Hall of Fame, Micro Mounters Hall of Fame in 1983. Rare specimens of Wantia Tail are found as tiny tubular olive crystals, strangely enough, only after locally, uh, they're, they're named locally after uh, Spain. The only other place they're found is in Spain, excuse me. And, and that's the namesake, is this one, one tonight. Um, austinite is another mineral that was discovered at Gold Hill District, and it also uh, was named after a mineralogist who discovered the mineral and appears colorless to pale green and in the light, pure specimens of the mineral fluorescent, a bright green color like uranium. So uh, it looks uh, it looks empty, but it's not a full-blown ghost town yet. There's a few permanent residents that still live in Gold Hill, Utah. And um, it says it does look like a ghost town, but it looks like a fun place to go visit and check out. I think that is about it, guys. I'm going to call it quits for tonight. I'm beat. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for your comments, your likes, your subscribes, and all that good stuff. Until next time, remember, rockhounds don't die. They petrify.